The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Well, good morning. I have the uh, distinct honor and pleasure of bringing God's Word to you uh, this morning. It is a... Um, it is always a weighty, weighty burden uh, that I, sorry, let me turn my uh, notifications off. Uh, it is a weighty burden that, that I carry uh, and that everyone who mounts this pulpit carries each and every week. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to see the saints gathered in person. Uh, from, from, I wish each of you could come up here and see this because it's, it's beautiful. Um, for the last five months, I've been talking to you uh, via a video camera, <laughs> uh, and that's no fun, and this is, this is a lot more pleasurable, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, be preaching on our text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I, I'm going to focus on verses 22 through 24, uh, but to open here, I want to read the entire section, because it's important that we get the context, a little bit of the context of what Paul is what Paul is dealing with here uh, in verses 18 through 25. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 18 through 25. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And then our text for today. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, we give you the glory. Father, salvation doesn't come through the way I speak, how elegant or not I speak, the words that I use. Father, salvation comes through Christ, the message of the cross. And so, Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, I pray, I pray, Lord, that that those here would see Christ in spite of me that they would hear your words this morning as I seek to honor you and lift up your name high. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now this is, a, this is, this is an, incredible, an incredible part of Scripture. It's such a wonderful part of Scripture. Uh, and, and as I was studying over it again, 
I started thinking, I was a little nervous, to be honest with you, because it's such a weighty part of Scripture. These, these uh, what is that, seven verses that we just read include about three major, major doctrines of the Christian faith in seven verses. I could probably make an entire you know, month-long or two-month-long series on just this, these passages here, which is one reason I chose to only focus on verses 22 through 24. Here we see in this section of Scripture, we see, we see a contrast, a major contrast between wisdom and foolishness. You might say, in some ways, it's a battle between two wisdoms. That is man's wisdom and God's wisdom. It's how the world says to God that the message of the cross is foolishness. It makes no sense. And God says back to the world that worldly wisdom is foolishness. In fact, we agree that the preaching of Christ is folly to those who don't believe. Now we see this even today. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a constant battle of worldviews. There's a constant battle of worldviews in our daily lives. Just turn on the news. But I want us to pay close attention what, to what, what Christ, what God is teaching us here in this text. We'll learn that God isn't saying that because we, because we have godly wisdom, we can be puffed up. Uh, because we know what's true and what's right and what's good. No, in fact, it's just the opposite of that. The message of the cross should humble us. Another reason I chose this text is because it is a weighty message. It's heavy. It's complicated. We don't understand it, the gospel that is. And yet at the same time, it's fundamental and it's basic and it's simple. And that's what Paul is trying to get across here to us. He's trying to point out to us the eternal implications of the gospel, of whether we believe it or not. And so as we turn to this text, it's, and we remember that the fundamental message uh, that, that, that Paul is teaching, that Christ has taught us, that Christ has revealed to us, whether you're a believer or not, especially if you're a believer, you should remind yourself of this truth each and every day. And so that's what we'll do today. It's a message that's folly to some. If you're here and you don't know Christ, this message is foolishness to you. It's absurd. Some of the things I'm going to say will be crazy to the worldly mind, to the worldly wisdom that, that, that we all had at one time. But to others, it's power. So let's get at it. The context here in Paul's epistle to the church at Corinth is that he's writing to the church that he planted. He loves this church. He loves them dearly. Paul tells us a little earlier in, in, the, in uh, the first chapter that, that they're a very gifted church. God has blessed them with many, many different spiritual giftings. But we'll also see really quickly the reason he writes this letter to them. It's because they're a dysfunctional church. 
in many ways, they're new believers. They hadn't been a church that long. And so they're baby Christians. They're still feeding on, on uh, uh, spiritual milk in many cases, in many instances. And so Paul writes this first letter to them, this first epistle to them, to straighten them out, to set things straight. We, they have a lot of problems. And just one of the problems that Paul addresses is what we're covering today. That's just one of the problems. They have, uh, they have d- d- divisions in the church. They have these factions. If you, if you go back just a couple of verses, uh, you'll see that they're quarreling among themselves. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. Some others say, I follow Christ. There's a unity that's at, that is at stake. There's a division in the church that's threatening this wonderful, wonderful church that Paul has planted. Quarreling, factions, divisions. They're damaging. They're damaging to the impact that church has in the region there. But remember as we get into this text that Paul is writing, who he's writing to. He's writing to the believers in the church. The church. He's not writing to address issues outside of the church. He's writing to the church. What happened? Well, quite simply, these believers in the church were starting to to slide back into those worldly wisdom and worldly desires that they once had before they became believers in Christ. That's why they were fighting among themselves. That's why he addresses wisdom. That's why, he, that's why he, in general terms, we'll talk specifically about the Jews and the Greeks, but he's talking generally. You have Jews in the church. You have G- Greeks or Gentiles. By the way, going forward, if I say Greek, it's interchangeable with Gentiles. If I say Gentiles, it's interchangeable with Greek. Basically, anybody that's not a Jew. And so Paul writes this letter to address issues with the believers. And even the Corinth believers, even though they were redeemed by the blood of Christ, still had trouble shaking their previous worldliness. So he he starts off this section uh, with with a scathing reminder. If you don't recognize this, what he's quoting here is from the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah writes this in, in Isaiah 29, 14. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He's saying to the Corinthians, remember who you are now. Later on, he says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Remember who you are because God promised to destroy those who seek earthly wisdom. That is those who are not of God. Paul says, don't be foolish. And he reminds the Corinthians that it wasn't enough, or it wasn't through the the wisdom that they had that they were saved. Instead, Paul says, it was through the foolishness of preaching. Notice I did not say foolish preaching. 
the foolishness of preaching, because that's what it is. What I'm doing here today is foolishness to the world. How do you, how, how do you read a book? How do you stake your entire life off of a book? Words on pages, the world would say. Words on pages. How do you stake your entire life off of a, sure, he was a historical man, some would agree. How do you give up everything that you have and follow this man? And not only follow this man, but follow a man who died as a criminal on a cross. That's utter foolishness to the world. That's because those outside the church sought man's wisdom. They would use philosophy to seek answers to life's questions and life's problems. But even with, that's why we, and I'll get here in a second, but remember the time frame that Paul is writing this. Paul is, he's a Jew and he's a, and he's a Roman citizen. So he's got, he was immersed in both cultures. He is fully immersed in the Jewish and the Hellenistic culture of Rome and the, the Athens and, and the Greek culture at the time. So he was well aware of all these uh, philosophers, Socrates and Aristotle, their teachings, and so on and so on and so on. These great thinkers of our day, of his day, But even with all of their wisdom, they had not found God. Man's wisdom can't find God. In fact, I'll even argue to you that man's wisdom doesn't even truly seek for God. But God's wisdom is living, it's not speculation. It's a living wisdom, it's, it's, it's your practical living and morals. It's a wisdom that leads to righteousness. It's a wisdom that leads to to holy and obedient living. God's wisdom is starkly opposite to man's wisdom. Man's wisdom thought that the Savior would come as a political powerhouse and overthrow the government. God's wisdom, the Savior came as a baby. (laughs) So let's look at what Paul says in verse 22. Remember, he's addressing an issue that both the Jews and the, the Greeks, or the Gentiles in the church, were falling back into these thought processes. He says, the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. These are two very distinct cultural groups here. Jews and Greeks, again, Jews or Gentiles. The the lost, pious, religious Jews, they longed for miraculous signs. The lost Gentiles, they sought after wisdom. But 
Paul says this. That's not what he preaches. That's what the philosophers do. And it doesn't work for them. Paul knows what works. Paul has the answer. And the answer that Paul says is the exact opposite of what the Jews and the Greeks were teaching. It's the exact opposite of what the Jews and the Greeks were wanting. He says this, but we preach Christ crucified. Paul preaches the gospel of Christ. That's the message of the cross that he he starts off this section with back in verse 18. Notice what Paul does here. He's addressing an issue that's threatening the church, and what does he do? He brings them back to the gospel. Because he knows that's the only answer. Some of your minds are going right now. It's the message of the gospel that saved them. It's the message of the gospel that sustains them. And it's the message of the gospel that unifies them. And he knows that they know it. They know the gospel. Which is why he goes back to the fundamental building block of their faith, the gospel. One of the reasons I chose this text also is because we're falling into this today. We seek answers to what's going on in the world through worldly theories, worldly philosophy, worldly ideologies, worldly answers to problems that can only be solved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I won't go down that rabbit trail right now, but I promise you your answer will not be found on CNN. Your answer won't be found on Fox News. Your answer won't be found in our next president. The answer is in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone, the gospel. So I want to point out something so we don't miss it. Every time, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, every time I come to something in the text uh, and I have an opportunity to emphasize particular doctrines of the Christian faith, as long as the text is showing it to us, I'm going to tell you what it is because it's important for us to grasp these things. Now, this entire section has at least two, I would argue three, crucial doctrines. But right here, we have a wonderful illustration of the doctrine of radical depravity. If you're a, if you're a tulip person, total depravity. Radical's a better word. <laughs> Radical depravity. Sin permeates to the very core of every person's being. It pollutes our hearts. It pollutes our minds. And because of this, you can't see, and you can't hear, and you can't know or choose even truth. And so when the truth is presented to you, it's foolishness. You're literally blinded by your sin. You know, better yet, you're dead in your sin. You're unable to respond to the gospel on your own. Unbelief, unbelief, hear me out, unbelief is always 
the basic reason for not accepting God's will and God's way. But unbelief is expressed in various ways. Paul points out a couple of the ways that unbelief is expressed here. To the Jews, this message of the cross is a stumbling block. This is twofold, really. Firstly, it's, it's, it, was, it was absolutely unbelievable that the Messiah would suffer. To the Jews, the message of a suffering servant was unbelievable. Now you're thinking, what about Isaiah 53? They knew the scripture. Cover that in a minute. What they did, after all, they would point to Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy 21, 23, and say this, where God says, he that is hanged on a tree is accursed by God. How can the Savior be accursed by God? It's foolish. Secondly, the Jews longed for miraculous signs. And we know from the Gospels that the Jews would repeatedly, over and over and time and time again, ask Jesus for a sign. But what did Jesus do? He refused to give it to them. They wouldn't believe in him unless they saw him perform a miracle. Remember this, though, that God entrusted the Jews with the Old Testament scriptures. The Jews were the ones that received his covenants and his law. The Jews received his promises. But when they came, uh, when Jesus came, though, they refused to believe unless he showed them miracles that would prove who he was. They rejected Jesus as divine. John 1.11 says this, he came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. His own people did not receive him. The ones that should have embraced him and seen who he was and known because they had the old, they had the old, the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And in particular, this part, and this is why Paul says it, this part here where Paul says, "We preach Christ crucified." That. Christ crucified is the stumbling block. The crucifixion of Jesus was a stumbling block. Romans 9, 31 through 33 says this, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. 
They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Isaiah foretold this in Isaiah 8, uh, uh, verses 13 through 15. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. And what? A stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. To who? To both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. The message of the gospel. This Messiah. This promised one. It's an offense. It's an offense to the Jews. It's an offense to our world today. You see, as I said before, the the Jews were looking for a powerful political savior, somebody that's going to come in and overthrow the kingdoms of this world, not a crucified one. After all, they thought there's no power in a dead Jew. Matthew Henry, this is kind of a long quote, and I apologize, but I thought it was so, so good, I needed to share it. Matthew, Matthew Henry says this, they had a conceit that their expected Messiah was to be a great temporal prince and therefore would never own one who made so mean an appearance in life and died so accursed a death for their deliverer and king. They despised him and looked upon him as repulsive because he was hanged on a tree. And because he did not gratify them with a sign to their mind, though his divine power shone out, and innumerable, innumerable miracles, they were blinded. They kept asking for signs, and it was right there in front of them the whole time. In fact, the crucifixion of Christ was essentially the final thing for the Jews that actually disproved his divinity. It disproved his divinity and who Christ claimed to be once and for all. How could, how could the Messiah die on a cross? Deuteronomy says that the one who's hanged is accursed by God. And st- still to this day, if you know any Orthodox Jews, if you have any Orthodox Jewish friends, still to this day, They either ignore or explain away passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Because they can't explain. They don't understand how the Messiah, the Savior of the world, could suffer and die on a cross. This message is also folly to the Gentiles. They, they actually, actually, if you go back in, in the book of Acts, they actually laughed. They laughed at the foolish message of the cross. Back in Acts 17, when, when, when Paul goes and preaches in Athens, what does it say at the end of the passage there? Do you remember? Some of them 
laughed at him. Others believed and wanted to talk more, but some of them just laughed at him. The Greek philosophers, they weren't interested in discovering truth, especially not truth about God. In fact, at the very end of that passage, Acts 17, 21, it tells us all they were interested in was hearing about new ideas and solutions to problems. So the wisdom they sought wasn't a divine, eternal wisdom. It was a human and temporary wisdom. Now, Greeks generally believed that that all matter was evil and that everything spiritual was good. And it's important that we get this because it'll explain a lot and why why Paul was uh, addressing this. That generally all matter was evil, so that would be anything in the physical realm is evil, and all spiritual things were good. So it didn't make sense to them how a God could come to earth as a man, how the spiritual could come and become material. It made no sense to them. And even if he could, it didn't make any more sense why he would want to. One commentator points out that nothing could be more absurd than the idea of an incarnate God giving himself to be crucified in order to secure salvation, holiness, and eternal life for a fallen world. In fact, the Greeks considered a crucified man to be nothing more than a criminal. And to proclaim, proclaim such a man was foolishness to them. Certainly, a criminal who died like that, a criminal who died on a cross, couldn't be the savior of mankind. You see, as I mentioned before, this Greek culture was heavily, heavily, heavily influenced by, by philosophy and man-centered ideologies. There's, uh, back in Acts, again, Acts, is a, Acts 17 in particular is a wonderful example of this. Paul talks about the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. They were seeking reasons for life. What's the meaning of life? That's a legitimate question. They sought after wisdom, but they sought it in the wrong place. In addition to their seeking after wisdom... The Greeks were known for a few other things. What they did was they would pursue uh, cleverness, ingenuity, smart speech. They would have these beautiful oratories, opposite of what you're hearing now. And what they would, they would glory in that. And here's the thing. It didn't matter what they were saying. The content was irrelevant. They just wanted to see a performance. It was all about the delivery. That's the only thing that mattered to them. But this worldly wisdom that they sought, 
was nothing more than pathetic attempts to solve the problems that they had. And to know God to no avail. Now, a mere intellectual search for God won't bring you to God. The Greek search for God or a God or a higher power, whatever we'd like to call it, it ended in an altar to an unknown God, a false God. Mere clever speaking or oratory can't bring you to God. This idea of this, this beautiful speech, captivating. There are stories that, that when, when certain orators, or sophists they were called, would begin speaking, people would leave arenas. They were doing other things. They would leave and flock and just, just to hear somebody speak about something they had no idea what he was talking about. Just because he did it so beautifully and eloquently. How, da- how, how dangerous it is if you're sitting out there thinking, this is not true, I know it. Man, he, he speaks very beautifully. And not care about the content of what I'm saying. That's the exact opposite of Paul. He used none of those communication tricks. None of them. He didn't preach words uh, of human wisdom. And he tells us, if you go over to the chapter 2, he says, my, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in, demonstra- but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And then, and then later on in, this, in, his, in his second epistle, really third, uh, the second that we have, um, epistle in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he tells us this. He reminds them, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Paul even tells them. He knows it. I'm not a good speaker. But that doesn't matter because my message is what matters. So we have the Jews who found the message of the cross a stumbling block. And we have the Greeks who thought it was foolishness. They're right. So we have two reactions to the message of the cross so far. But there's a third. Paul tells us, but finally, the message of the cross is the power and wisdom of God to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. Paul brings his epistle back to the target audience, the church at Corinth. Now that Paul has pointed out the problem in their, with their past worldly actions, he tells them that the message they have come to understand by divine revelation is what they need to remember and turn back to. This alone, the message of the cross, is what will keep them unified. The, this message, the message of the cross, Christ crucified, Paul tells us, is the power and wisdom of God to them. Christ is God's reply to the Gentiles who consider the message of the cross to be foolishness. Christ is the power of God. Christ is God's power in redeeming his people. 
God reveals his power in Christ's resurrection. Remember when the Jews demanded miraculous signs? This is truly the Jews' answer for a sign. A resurrected Savior. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the power to save sinners. Apart from the cross, there is no power that can save. Romans 1.16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the cross is designed by design. It was designed for all who believe, namely us who are called, Paul says, the power of the cross. Because only the cross, only the cross has the power to take take away, to remove the penalty of sin. Only the cross secures our salvation and brings sin's stronghold, or breaks sin's stronghold in our lives. Only the cross can supernaturally, supernaturally transform our lives. This is why Paul places the gospel as first importance, the primacy of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 verses three and four where he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And it's important that you notice that. I won't go down that road right now, but he says in accordance with the scriptures. All of these things were foretold, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and other places. The Jews knew it. Paul points them back to it. Because our hope lies in the cross. Our hope lies in becoming a new creation, a new creation that comes from dying and rising again. Therein is the power of Christ's death and resurrection. And the work that Christ set out to accomplish, The plan that was made from before the foundation of the world to save his people was finished. It was finished on the cross. Another doctrine for you, keeping score at home. That's the, that's the doctrine of definite atonement. Again, tulip people, limited atonement. Definite's a better word. Definite atonement. Why do I call it definite atonement? It's the definite atonement of Jesus Christ our Lord. The death of Christ on the cross wasn't an attempt. It was an accomplishment. Matthew one twenty one. You shall call his name Jesus for he will not might not probably but will save his people from their sins. The work of the cross is fundamental, it's essential. Without the cross, there is no salvation. Indeed, under the law, most every, almost everything is purified with blood, Hebrews tells us. 
And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's another doctrine I could go into right now, but my time is almost up. Substitutionary atonement. The blood that Christ shed on that cross should have been you. It should have been me. He died in our place. He literally died in our place. I keep mentioning Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 that the, that the uh, uh, Jews ignore. They'll, they'll skip over it. They'll explain it away. They'll, they'll attribute, uh, instead of attribute these, these characteristics and this prophecy to Christ, the Messiah, they attribute it to Israel as suffering. That is not what it says. I don't have time to read it, the whole thing. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. And down, down a little bit further, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the man, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered. He poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. The message that Paul is teaching here, Christ's crucifixion, is the message of the gospel. The one and only God, who is holy, he made us in his image. He made us in his, in, in his image to know him. But we sinned and we cut ourselves off from him. And in great love, God became a man in Jesus. He lived a perfect life and he died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for sins of all those who would ever turn and believe in him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us, God's wrath against us had been extinguished. It had been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sins. And he, he, he calls us to turn and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. And if we do that, he promises he is faithful and he is just to forgive and we're born again into new life, into an eternal life with God. That message is clear. It is a clear, it is a simple message to those who are being saved. That's why it's called foolishness. The Greeks thought oh, that's just too, too simple. It doesn't make sense. It's a message too simple for some. It's a stumbling block to others. The message of the cross is going to sound like nonsense to some people around us. 
It's going to make Christians look like fools, but to preach a gospel without the cross is not the gospel. And if people laugh and if they call us fools, so be it. Because we know that the foolishness of God, the foolishness of God, is wiser than man's wisdom. Let me wrap this up. But in this room today, there are only two people. There are those who are perishing and there are those who are being saved. Who are you? Have you heard the gospel here today and it pierced your heart for the first time? Is the Holy Spirit drawing you to repentance? If so, run, run, run to him. Because he is faithful and he is just to forgive. And if you're a believer here today, listen to me, listen to me. The gospel is just not for unbelievers. If you're a believer here today, let the truth of the gospel fill and refill and pour out of your heart each and every day. May it encourage and strengthen you each and every day. Why do we preach the gospel each and every week? I think it was Spurgeon said, because we forget it each and every week. And so I urge each of you to live your life with eternity in mind. Make decisions. Converse with others. Love your spouses, your children. Do everything that you do through the lens of the gospel. That's why Paul, uh, multiple other times, but even just in the next chapter, he says, for I decided I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Turn off the news, open your Bibles, don't get sucked back into that culture that as the Corinthians were doing. Remember to whom you've been called and to whom you now belong. You can rest in the beautiful picture of the gospel, the beautiful truth of the gospel. Rest in it, the work is finished. It's finished. You can't work your way to heaven. He did the work for you. Repent. Believe in him. Knowing, knowing, knowing that your debt is paid in full. Would you pray with me? Father, we are humbled. We're thankful that we can come to you and know that our debt is paid in full. I pray for those who are here who don't know you. Lord, I pray that you would pierce their hearts with the truth of the gospel, that you would draw them to yourself, open their eyes, make them alive again in Christ. For those of us who believe, renew our hearts as we turn to your gospel each and every day, as we do life in light of the gospel, through the lens of eternity, through the lens of the gospel. Be with us now, Lord, as we go from this place in spirit and in truth. Give us the strength, give us the power, give us your wisdom to do your work. In Christ we pray, amen.